Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 3, Episode 19, Who Won the War of 1812? The War of 1812 has survived in Canadian myth, memory, and history in such a way that it is often presented in simplistic and nationalistic terms. Canada beat America. Rah, rah, rah. Well, this is simply too simplistic to do credit to the actual history. So today, let's try and explore who actually won the War of 1812. Today's book recommendation is John Latimer's 1812 War with America. This is a huge volume, but it is an in-depth history of the war from the Anglo-Canadian perspective. For those deeply interested in the history of this war, Latimer provides an unparalleled accounting of it. Okay, so before any discussion of the War of 1812 can occur, we need to understand what exactly was going on in North America leading up to this war. So we'll go back to 1783. 1783 had marked the conclusion of the American War of Independence. In the aftermath of that war, there was suddenly this new fledgling republic called the United States of America, made up of the 13 colonies along its Atlantic seaboard, stretching from Georgia in the south to New Hampshire in the north. While British North America had essentially been reduced to three formal colonies, the colony of Quebec, that encompassed much of modern-day Quebec and parts of modern southern Ontario and the western parts of modern-day New Brunswick, the colony of Nova Scotia, so Cape Breton Island, the eastern half of modern-day New Brunswick, and all of modern-day Nova Scotia, as well as the colony of Prince Edward Island, which was, simply put, the colony of Prince Edward Island, the island today. The British also controlled Newfoundland, which, while settled, would not become an official crown colony until 1825. So this basically made up what was left of British North America after the American Revolution, these sort of three underpopulated colonies and this sort of island sort of colony just above it. However, both the British and the Americans hungrily eyed vast tracts of land to the west that was occupied almost exclusively by various indigenous groups, many who were hostile to any European expansion into that territory. For the Americans, their immediate objective was the area often referred to as the Ohio Territory. 
so a like large chunk of land south of the Great Lakes, encompassing the modern-day states of Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Indiana. At the same time, the British lusted after the area often referred to as Rupert's Land, essentially everywhere connected to waterways draining from the Hudson's Bay. So this is parts of modern-day Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, as well as parts of Minnesota, North and South Dakota, and Montana. So that's the general map, and I'll make sure to get something up on our Instagram account and our Facebook account for all of you to look at. What's the situation, though? Well, in the aftermath of the American Revolution, thousands of people fled from the United States and migrated into British North America. These people were known as Loyalists. Essentially, these were people who had fought and supported the British crown during the Revolution, as well as many who felt their futures were better off under the protection of the British Empire, as opposed to the world's newest republic. Thus, over the two decades that followed the American Revolution, British North America saw an influx of thousands of people who were generally hostile to the American Republic and ardent supporters of the British Crown. Though, on a little side note, it should be noted that hundreds of settlers in what would become Upper Canada, so modern-day southern Ontario, were fairly patriotic Americans who came over in the late 18th and early 19th century because of the offer of good, free farmland, something that would make things quite tense in that region when war finally erupted. Now, so many people had in fact migrated into British North America that the British were forced to carry out a massive political reorganization of the region to accommodate this changing demographic. In 1784, they took parts of the colony of Nova Scotia to create two new colonies, the colony of New Brunswick, which would become the modern-day province, and the colony of Cape Breton Island. In 1791, the British split the colony of Quebec into an Upper Canada, whose population was almost entirely English-speaking and Protestant, and Lower Canada, made up of most of modern-day Quebec, whose population remained largely French-speaking and Catholic. I'm sure I've probably brought this up before, but what distinguishes Upper and Lower Canada in terms of the name is the St. Lawrence River. Upper Canada is upriver, and Lower Canada is downriver of the St. Lawrence River, hence the Upper and Lower. Now, at the same time that Upper and Lower Canada were being created, back in Europe in 1791, one of the most important events rocked that continent, sending shockwaves throughout most of the modern world. This was, of course, the French Revolution. Now, it may have started in 1789, but in 1791, the revolution went abroad creating what would become the Revolutionary Wars. So within a year, Britain's attention had turned away from her British North America colonies and towards the continent, where she sought to stem the tide of revolutionary France, and by the early 19th century would be the leading belligerent against none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. So in Europe, by the end of the 18th century, Britain seems to be distracted to the continent. Meanwhile, 
in the United States, almost from the very first day of the country's official creation, it was involved in continual conflict with the various indigenous groups in the West, the Cherokee-American Wars, the Northwest Indian War, and most importantly, the uprising led by famed warrior Tecumseh. All of these encompassed a series of bloody, continual frontier conflicts between the U.S. government and the First Nations of the West. And this was generally a result of tension as American settlers pushed rapidly westward, backed by American military might. From 1783 all the way into the War of 1812, the American government and its people were constantly engaged in military conflict with one indigenous nation or another as it sought to rapidly expand its territory westward. Okay, so this gives us a pretty good indication of the geopolitical situation at the end of the 19th century. A British North America that is reshaping politically while gaining quite a significant amount of new people. It's also dealing with an American expansionist model that is moving westward and dealing with significant conflict with indigenous groups while the mother country is focused on the continent with this emerging radical French revolutionary state and eventually, of course, Napoleon Bonaparte. So you guys following along? Good. With this background, we can now talk about why the war broke out. First and foremost, it should be noted that tensions certainly continue to exist between the Americans and British after the war. Many Americans, led by a group often referred to as the Warhawks, clamored for a renewal of conflict in order for the United States to achieve its manifest destiny, that being the control of the entire continent from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean. Many Warhawks and their supporters saw great economic and political benefits from the annexation of British North America and the ousting of the British from the continent. These war hawks were helped by a few key issues that saw British action anger many, many Americans. Firstly, it was well known that the British continued to tacitly support the natives of the West, providing them with weapons and supplies in their ongoing conflicts with the Americans. As well, by 1805, a British blockade of Europe was in full effect as the British hoped to starve Napoleon into submission. This, however, seriously interfered with American trade with the continent and angered many of the merchant class along the U.S. Atlantic coast. And as we know, the business of America is business, and you don't mess with America's business. Finally, the British policy of impressment was a major contributor to American hostility towards the British. Impressment was essentially the policy whereby the British Navy would forcibly press men into service with the Royal Navy, basically forcing them to serve as sailors with the RN. British ships would often stop American ships at sea and forcibly remove men they deemed to be either British citizens or even deserters from the Royal Navy. It was often almost impossible for the British to distinguish whether the men being impressed were in fact British deserters or citizens, and this meant that it was not uncommon for American sailors to suddenly find themselves kidnapped and forced to work for the British Navy. 
One of the more famous incidents occurred in 1807, when the U.S. ship Chesapeake was actually fired on by a British warship in order to force it to surrender and hand over four suspected deserters. Thus, in the years leading up to the War of 1812, the British had certainly carried out policies that drove thousands of supporters into the War Hawks camp. At the same time, there were many Americans who simply saw expansionism as the appropriate destiny for the new republic. Now, before we continue on with our story, I just want to give you all a reminder. You know you can find us all on your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and always at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you happen to go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive solely on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. With PayPal, you can do a one-time donation. Patreon is kind of cool in that you can say, I'll donate a dollar for every time an episode comes out, and then we get a dollar every time. Either way, we are extremely grateful for your contributions as well. On our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now on with the show. At this point, you might be saying, I'm going to go donate to cool Canadian history. But you also might be saying, why would the British antagonize the Americans like this? And you would be correct in asking that question. Simply put, The British were so focused on fighting on the continent that they were genuinely unaware of the deteriorating situation in North America. Thus, on 1 June 1812, they were quite surprised when President James Madison presented to Congress a list of grievances against Great Britain. Both the House and the Senate voted in favor of a declaration of war, and on 18 June 1812, the declaration was made official. The USA had declared war on Great Britain, the first time in that country's history that it had ever declared war. The War of 1812 had begun. Now, the objectives of both sides were pretty straightforward. The Americans believed that a quick invasion would overwhelm BNA's meager defenses. By the way, BNA is short for British North America. Now, BNA's defenses was made up of a series of small forts, a small regular army, so your classic professional British redcoats, a larger, though undertrained and under-equipped militia. For more about this, by the way, see Season 2, Episode 6, The Missing Militia, for a discussion of the Upper Canadian Militia. As well, added to the BNA's defense forces was eventually a sizable number of indigenous warriors. The Americans believed they would fairly easily overrun this Anglo-Canadian native military and essentially occupy British North America until the British sued for peace. This occupation would allow Washington to use British North America as a bargaining chip with Britain. Through the use of BNA, the Americans hoped to gain greater recognition of their ocean-going rights, specifically revolved around trade and fishing. They hoped Britain would specifically recognize their right to trade with France and the continent unimpeded. 
and they wanted the British to formally cease the policy of impressment as well as stop supplying the hostile indigenous tribes of the West. While not an official policy of President Madison, many war hawks in his cabinet and in government saw the capture of British North America as the final step in the ultimate mastery of the continent. Now, the Anglo-Canadian strategy was much simpler. Simply put, it was to hold out as long as possible, beat back the American invasion, and wait until the British could send more reinforcements. This was going to prove difficult as long as Britain was still focused on defeating Napoleon. Okay, so America invades, rapidly conquers BNA, and the Anglo-Canadians hope to just hold out as long as possible. One of the interesting things to point out here, however, is that while many on the American and British side believed the Americans would ultimately overwhelm the British North American defenses, looking back, we can tell that the American army was quite unprepared for war. They had a small, regular army of approximately 12,000 soldiers that were busy dealing with hostile indigenous groups in the West. This meant that the bulk of the invading American army was going to be made up of the state militias. But many in the militia were unwilling to leave their state. Not to mention, most of the militia were, like their British North American counterparts, undertrained and under-equipped. Finally, in the New England states, most people didn't even support a war with British North America, and a de facto truce existed between the state militias of New England and the BNA military opposite New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Thus, while the American military was certainly more powerful than the British North American military, they were not as dominant as many believed at the time, and the American military was going to find it very difficult to successfully wage and sustain an offensive war. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, this episode is not going to go into too great of a detail about the specific military events that characterize the War of 1812. We'll leave that for future CCH episodes. What we will trace here is the general narrative of the phases of the war. The war was fought on land and at sea, and by sea we really mean the Great Lakes, where the American Navy and the Anglo-Canadian Provincial Marine squared off for control of the Great Lakes. Now, at the outbreak of the war, the Anglo-Canadian Navy dominated the Great Lakes, but the American fleet expanded rapidly, and in September 1813, the Americans won the naval battle of Put-in-Bay, taking control of Lake Erie for the remainder of the war. This lake was, of course, a crucial acquisition for the Americans, as it gave them almost uncontested access into Upper Canada. Yet, the other Great Lakes remained in the hands of the Anglo-Canadians for the majority of the war, not to mention that British naval superiority of the Atlantic Ocean would prove unshakable and allow the British to continue to send reinforcements and supplies. 
The bulk of the fighting during the War of 1812 occurred on land and included four attempted American invasions of British North America. The year 1812 saw the British win a series of battles, some right across the border in American territory, most famously at Detroit. In fact, the capture of Detroit saw a greater number of indigenous groups join the British side. As well, in that same year, the British successfully fended off the first of the American invasions at the Battle of Queenston Heights on the Niagara Peninsula. 1813, however, saw the Americans finally start to gain some modest successes, especially in their second invasion attempt. They twice occupied York, that's modern-day Toronto, but could never consolidate their gains in that region and were twice forced to retreat back across the border. However, in southwest Upper Canada, so modern-day Windsor region, the Americans were able to invade and successfully hold that area for much of the remainder of the war. At this time, the Americans dealt a vicious blow to the Anglo-Canadian cause when famed native leader Tecumseh was killed at the Battle of Moraviantown in October of 1813. The death of this key figure saw indigenous support for the British fracture and was a major blow to the Anglo-Canadian Native Alliance that made up the defensive forces of British North America. It was around that same time when the Americans launched their third and largest invasion when they attempted a two-pronged assault on both Upper and Lower Canada at the same time. But once again, victory eluded them as the American army was beaten at Chrysler's Farm in Upper Canada and at the Battle of Chateauguay in Lower Canada. If you want to know more about the Battle of Chateauguay, check out Season 1, Episode 5, and All Canadian Affair for a discussion of this battle. 1814 would see the Americans invade one last time. You see, Napoleon had just surrendered back in Europe and the Americans sought to crush British North American resistance before the full might of the British military could be transferred from Europe to North America. Once again, the American invasion proved to be a failure. At the Battle of Lundy's Lane on the Niagara Peninsula, the American invasion force was defeated in the bloodiest battle of the entire war. That same year, the British finally went on the offensive, successfully burning down the American capital at Washington, D.C., before finally being stopped outside the walls of Baltimore. This siege of Baltimore, by the way, was where the Star-Spangled Banner was written. While peace negotiations were going on back in London, a British force also landed in Louisiana and marched on New Orleans where they were eventually defeated in January 1815, even though a peace treaty had actually been signed a couple of weeks before the battle. So, what exactly happened with the peace? There were no territorial gains or losses for either side. Any military still occupying their enemy's territory returned home. American trade restrictions with Europe were lifted when Britain defeated a returned Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. The British did suspend their policy of impressment. Of course, they were no longer in a major global war and didn't need the sailors. And the British promised not to supply the indigenous tribes of the West. So these were certainly American gains. 
For the indigenous tribes who had joined the Anglo-Canadian side, they were perhaps the biggest losers to come out of the conflict. They were now isolated, and without any effective British support, the Americans could focus on destroying them without fear of British interference, and focus they did. There were also some interesting long-term consequences of the peace. The American military and its reliance on the militia had generally proven a disaster. In the aftermath of the war, American military and government officials began to stress greater professionalization of the American army and less and less reliance on state militias. For many in Britain, the War of 1812 was pretty much a sideshow, and there was little thought given to the conduct of it. In Canada, the war acted as a unifier amongst many of the English-speaking population. Many Anglo-Canadians wrote and spoke about the war as a successful defense against the aggression of American republicanism, and this helped to reinforce amongst this population loyalty to the crown and to monarchism. While French Canadians certainly fought in the war, the War of 1812 has a much more complex place in French-Canadian identity and history, Though for several current-day Quebec regiments, they trace their historical origins to this war. But perhaps the most important outcome after the War of 1812 was that America, Britain, and thus Canada would never again go to war against each other. Yes, there was going to be tense times, and there would even be a few Fenian invasions, but formal war would never again be declared. An incredibly long period of peace that still injures today. So, who won the War of 1812? Well, I am going to go with a tactical victory for the Anglo-Canadian indigenous side. If the ultimate American goal was to capture British North America to use as a bargaining chip, the Americans failed time and time again. Repeated incursions were defeated, and for those warhawks hoping for continental mastery, they were sorely disappointed. But strategically, it's a lot more complicated. In terms of broad political aims, the Americans were able to achieve most of what they desired. The policies of impressment and support for the Western indigenous tribes were all abandoned by the British. As well, the Americans were once again able to trade freely with Europe. Yet for the British, the American theater was a sideshow to Napoleon. And thus, successfully defending against American invasions while still defeating Napoleon in Europe was enough for the British to assume the mantle of victory. I am therefore going to conclude that the war was a strategic draw. Little comfort to the thousands who died for such anticlimactic results. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.